to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. My name is Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am really excited to welcome Tanya Bass. With over 20 years of public health education experience, she is considered a subject matter expert in the areas of minority health, pregnancy prevention, HIV, STIs, and reproductive sexual health. She's an alumna of North Carolina Central University's Department of Public Health Education, where she served as an adjunct professor for the past 10 years. Currently, she is the lead instructor for human sexuality. She is a highly requested trainer, facilitator, and mentor, and much of her work has been in collaboration with community-based organizations, churches, academic institutions, and state and national conferences. She is the former president for the North Carolina Society for Public Health Education, and she is the founder of North Carolina Sexual Health Conference, which is an annual conference dedicated to connecting agencies and individuals to create opportunities to share information, efforts, and best practices around sexual health and the lifespan. Girl, I am out of breath. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be (laughs) up. Okay, how do you have time for all this stuff? Because I also know that Tanya is doing um, her doctoral work at Widener, like I am. And how do you have time for all this? It's, no, it's been very challenging fitting it all in. Um, I think the the biggest challenge was NC SexCon in 2016. I started that conference. And I tell people, it sounds like a joke, but it's true. I literally use the financial aid um, refund check as the funding support. So, like, (laughs) I was like, okay, this is all the money that I have, but I'll have enough if people actually come. And I think that's what added more to the workload, but I wouldn't change anything about it. Well, I'm impressed, and I would love to know, I mean, for people who don't know about it, tell me about NC SexCon and, like, what... Yeah, what inspired you to start that? Really? So um, on in my work life, full-time, I had been working in HIV prevention. I've done family, um, life education, sex education, reproductive health with um, maternal child health, teen pregnancy prevention. So all these little segments of work, even with intimate partner violence. And I realized that people were having conferences and professional development kind of in a siloed way. And then I started working and volunteering with the National Sex Ed Conference. And I was like, wow, this conference is amazing. And I saw more people on a national level kind of come together and learn on their different topics in sexuality. And so I wanted to do that in North Carolina because I know that some people can't afford to go to those national conferences or travel or both. And so I just had this desire. Like, I cannot tell people how strong the desire was to do this, even though I was scared out of my wits to do it. And I just had a small goal of like 50 or 75 people. I'll be good to go. And I think the first year we had like 180 people actually come. That include the volunteers, amazing set of volunteers, amazing planning team, about 13 colleagues from North Carolina. And we just put it on. And 
um, you and I both were students at Widener University. So some of our professors and colleagues actually presented. I think, you know, Chris Donahue, um, yes, he actually was the opening keynote. And I was scared because I'm like, are people in North Carolina really going to hear what, you know, he has to say? Are they ready from this perspective of sexuality? And it was amazing. Were you worried that people weren't going to come out? Because I think there's sort of a stereotype maybe in North Carolina that like people aren't talking about sex. I was so worried. I was worried because of our current or previous uh, government administration um, locally. Um, I was afraid just about the topics and we were trying to be very careful. Like we didn't want to exclude people, but we probably steered away from a lot of the more um, what people might consider risque sexuality topics in the first year. Just to get people to come in. Yeah. What would you consider the, the risque sex topics? Well, we I think we probably only had one workshop that was around kink or BDSM. Like, I think that was steering away from that, trying to see what people wanted first. And our theme was around the circles of sexuality as well. So we just wanted to see what we could educate people on, what we could provide them with. And then the biggest thing, I'll be honest, is that there were those conferences that were happening around us that wouldn't allow certain people at the table, in particular um, people of color or women of color and people like myself who do sexuality education. It was kind of like, well, you don't do teen pregnancy or you don't do whatever. And so it was also an opportunity for local folks who are doing amazing work who never get an opportunity to present at national or local conferences to also present. It was a good time for North to shine. Congratulations. I mean, that's huge. And it sounds like it's great. It's growing. Yeah. When is it coming up now? And are you worried about stuff with coronavirus? So fortunately this year, so we did it in 2016. It was so amazing. We ended up coming up with the theme for 2017, which was sexual health equity. And I was like, see y'all next year. And I was like, wait, I'm not really wanting to do this every year, but we did it in 2017. Yeah. 2017, we worked hard. We made a conscious effort that we would take a break in 2018. I focused on my doctoral studies and some other work, and then we'd be coming back. And so we had it in 2019. And our theme was about pleasure, power, politics, and practice. And so we had a lot more kink sessions, by the way, because, of course, pleasure was like in there. So it was exciting. And then we said 2020, we were going to work on a symposium and we hadn't set the date, which I'm kind of glad because now everything's totally out of control. So we're going to see what we're going to do. We wanted to offer a SAR as well. So and for people who don't know what that is, a SAR is a sexual attitude reassessment training. Um, What happens in a what happens in a SAR? So for me, my perspective of a SAR is like you're learning and I think you're learning for your professional, but you're also learning for your personal where you're exposed to different types of material and information and you have to really sit with it and process it and think about how it makes you feel. Um, We're good at, at cognitive, like we like to go to conferences and workshops and learn, learn, learn. Most of the time we come back and don't do anything with the information, but a SAR... The the amount of notepads that I've like written down great notes in from like, conferences that I've been to and it was like, oh, I'm going to do so many great things with this and then not. 
Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and so then with the star, you also talk about how it makes you feel like and how does it impact your work and why do you feel that way? Like you might tap into some things that have um, make you have certain feelings from your childhood or a previous client. You don't you don't never you never know what's really going to come up and you get to process that with a small group and a large group of people. It's it's wonderful. I was apprehensive about doing a star in North Carolina as well, but I um as we've been doing Antique Sex Con, I've met more um sexuality professionals and they've been doing it in the west of the state and so we're hoping to do ours in the eastern part of the state, which tends to be a little more conservative. And I mean, I would recommend it for anyone, but mostly it's for people who are working in any kind of like sexuality profession, like she's saying to like, really get in touch with like the narratives that you're bringing into sexuality and to like challenge yourself to look at things beyond that and like expand your experiences with things that you might not otherwise get to, but it's really like experiential learning. And that definitely like goes a long way. It does. And so... You were working in public health before, and it sounds like a lot of the stuff you were doing with that is in like prevention-based stuff and like risk management, which I can understand that as like part of maybe all that maybe the government cares about. And I wonder, where is public health stuff at with sexual health now? Like, are they still mostly caring about risk management? I think yes, but I think there's always been folks like I would talk, I would say, well, I'll start with Dr. Jocelyn Elders from my um, historical point of view with, when she mentioned masturbation. Like, I feel like there's always been people who are proponents of pleasure and understanding that you have to understand the whole. Um, Dr. Eli Coleman is someone that I actually got to meet and I was like freaking out, but he was the first paper that I um, used and had a model about how we should teach and approach sexuality education from a public health perspective that included the whole person. And I just thought, yes, somebody finally gets what I've been trying to say all along. And now I feel like people in public health are probably doing more around pleasure and being more sex positive because that's really what it is. I felt like prevention wasn't sex positive in my experience. Um, I was a disease intervention specialist who went out back in the late 90s and we um, did partner notification around syphilis and HIV. And I remember being programmed and I say programmed because I was taught something. I never thought about if I believed it or not <laughs> or, or maybe even cared, but I repeated it. Like, you know, when people would say, oh, well, I don't really want to use condoms. So the only way you can prevent HIV and some of these other infections is using a condom or not having sex. I didn't want people not to have sex. But I was like, just use a condom. And they were like, oh, condoms don't feel good. Put lube on it. It's just the same. Like, I didn't really believe that, but I would just say it because I'm like. Because that's what you were supposed to say. I was supposed to say it. And I didn't even talk about the different types of lube, the different types of condoms. It was like, just use a condom and use lube and you'll be fine. Never talk about, like, maybe somebody has the reason why they really don't like them is not because it doesn't feel good, but because the smell triggers them or makes them, you know, reflect on a negative experience or anything, you know. Wait, explain this this partner thing to me. So you were going out and informing partners of people who had, like, positive status or what? Yeah, so, like, it, as a DIS, and they still work now, and it's so funny you bring that up because with COVID-19, you know, you're having to go tr do tracing of people you've come in contact with. Right. So that's what they're doing now when they call someone and they say, who have you had contact with in the past, like however many days to like track it? 
Yes. And a DIS, a disease intervention specialist, would do that for HIV and syphilis, but they wouldn't necessarily, well, they would call you, but our job, like, we would meet you. We And we would, I hate to use the word, because sometimes some DIS aren't very personable, but, like, track you down, and they used to call it tracking, um, because let's say somebody gave your name, and it was just your first name. You have a very unique first name. So like wherever you live, I'm thinking, Hey, let me see if I can find some information on someone named Nicoletta. And then if I find you, I would call you or leave you a letter or come to your job or whatever I needed to do to tell you that you've been exposed. I wouldn't tell you how. I was going to say, how is that legal? This sounds like such an invasion of privacy. It isn't, it isn't. So no one tells you, like, you you know what you've been doing and who you've been doing it with, but, right? <laughs> most most of the time? Most, most of the time. Well, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. But, you know, I remember my, one of my cases that somebody said, and I feel like I can say it because I don't think, I think this person wasn't giving me the full information, and sometimes they don't. And it was, like, um, somebody named, um, I think it was Strawberry, so it doesn't matter if I'm saying it anyway. But they were, like, this, somebody named Strawberry, she hangs at this grocery store. And I think she was a sex worker. And I was, like, crap, that's all I got is a city, a grocery store, and a person who wears pink hair and nickname is Strawberry that nobody seemed to know. And I'm, like, well, if they had pink hair, pretty obvious somebody would know who that person is. But if it were, like, you, Nicoletta, and I would talk to you and I would say, hey, um, we have reason to believe that you've been exposed to HIV or syphilis. I, you know, I'm here from the government. And um, if you want it, because we were trained as phlebotomists, I would say, look, I know this seems weird. If you want just to get and get it over with, I can take you to my car, draw a tube of blood and you fill out the paperwork. And I take it to the lab and we'll run it and we'll test it for syphilis and HIV and I'll follow back up with you. And you could be like, yeah. Or you could say, oh, hell no. Like I'm going to the health department or because you know your behaviors, you'll, you could be like, I know so-and-such probably exposed me and I still can't say anything. It's a dangerous job on both ends. Yeah. Did you ever have pushback from people who like threatened you? No one has threatened me, but they tried to like figure out where I worked or where I live. Cause we also drive like it's a, it's a thankless job, but it's a important job. You drive your own car. You don't wear a uniform. You don't, you know, all you have is your state ID. <laughs> that, that would be creepy though. If some, like, I like not that you're creepy, but I'm imagining like it could be some random person come to my house and be like, I work with the government, come to my car and I'll take your blood. <laughs> exactly. And like, you have to have like, you, you have to learn how to build. And that's why I say you can get people's trust. There've been times when I've gone to somebody's house and I've been out doing work and I was like, crap, I should have stopped to use the bathroom. And I was just like, totally breaking the rules. But I'm like, I'm sorry. May I use your bathroom? <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm just doing this. Um, you actually, you carry supplies in your car that ideally are considered paraphernalia. Or at the time it was, we have looser needle um, use laws, but you're carrying needles and stuff in your car too. But it's an important job because most of the time people do take you seriously. Um, and they give you as much information and the what we know about these diseases and the infections and how they're transmitted, you you know, you can tap into really good conversations um, about pleasure now. But I don't think I spent that much time then. So when did you realize that it was important to include conversations about more than just risk prevention? 
I think it didn't hit me until I actually started working with persons living with HIV. And we were doing, um, I was creating a curriculum for them um, to be peer navigators for newly infected people. So these were people who had been living with HIV for a long time, had navigated the healthcare system and the care system and a lot in life in general. And when we started talking about life after HIV, including disclosure and still being a sexual being, it was like bricks all along. And then a ton of them hit me during that time was like, we don't tell, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the fact that we're sexual from birth to death and that, yeah, some people aren't disclosing their HIV status because guess what? They're still trying to get a lot of other needs, including their sexual needs met. And how do we fault them for that? Like we have rules, but we also have human basic needs and we got to help people navigate how that all works. And I get the importance of it. And obviously now most sexually transmitted infections are not death sentences. And with the proper, you know, diagnosis and treatment, like it doesn't have to impact your life a lot. So I I wonder how, how do we balance this need for data and information and sort of public health safety while also not stigmatizing? That's where a lot of, so in in addition to being more sex positive, and I think that's where people in public health and prevention where I have been able to accept a sex positive um, framework mm-hmm. is that the stigma still weighs heavy and that we we're trying to address that. And the only way to do that is through a sex positive lens. Cause we yeah. have to think about, you only need one partner. You always use a condom with whoever that partner is or some type of protective barrier and probably only have certain type of sex. That's like, I think that's kind of like the prevention world. If everything could be perfect, then they think, I think that they think nothing would happen. And that's not the way the world. Right. Yeah. It'd be like, it'd be like not wanting to educate kids about sex because you think that educating them more or allowing them to do more stuff is going to be more dangerous. Yeah. As opposed to like, okay, we know you're already doing X, Y, and Z. So like, let's talk about it. Yeah. From a, and you can still have a safety perspective but not take away people's pleasure not help have them change their behaviors completely are you holding condoms right now (laughs) i know i happen to have them on my desk (laughs) when i said it i don't don't know why i grabbed them i grabbed some people have stress balls but tanya has lifestyle condoms (laughs) non-latex by the way oh okay for so i i'm hoping that a lot of our listeners know about like different types of like condoms out there but like tell me more about non-latex and other options yeah so I grew up in this stage of like latex 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 all the time and then people had latex allergies I mean honestly latex really smells and there's some latex condoms out there like um one brand condom not to name drop but I feel like they have less of a rubbery smell like latex stinks I'm gonna be honest um but now we have polyisoprene which is what these are and we had polyurethane by uh, the ones that I knew the most were Durex condoms that had polyurethane, but there's some more. But what's so dope about these, and this is the type of stuff that now you can have a conversation is like you put these on. No, it will never. And now we have to stop telling people it's never going to feel the same as no condom because there's a condom. But this can, um, what is it? Is it the word contracts heat or attracts heat? So like your body heat kind of makes it feel a little more natural. It's a little thinner, but still 
as strong as a latex condom and with you can actually use different types of lube so with latex you know you're not supposed to use anything oil based with polyurethane you actually can use something that's more slick or um, oil based if that's your preference and it won't tear down and one of my favorites to tell people about that a lot of folks don't use is the internal condom or also called the quote unquote female condom um, by FC2, which is annoying because it can be more difficult to get because you have to order it online. But now everyone has to order things online because we're all stuck in our house. So now is the time to order some FC2, but it's basically, it looks kind of like a sleeve that you put inside a person's vagina. Um, and it's also non-latex. So it's cool because you can put it in a couple hours before um, you're having any type of like sex play um, and it's good to go. And I love that condom too, because you could use it on all different types of body parts and activities because you could take the ring out. Like that's the other thing about prevention. We were, we were so focused on all or nothing. I'm kind of like, like what, what little increment of prevention can you do that's going to make you safer? So guess what? If you only have FC2 and you don't want to have um, you know, vaginal sex because you have that ring in it and you want to have anal sex, take the ring out and use it that way. It still works. And I think now, I don't know if you read it, but I think there was an article in the New York Times and it was basically like a public health article talking about like safer sex practices during coronavirus times. Did you read that? Yeah, but people think it's a joke. I know. Well, people are making memes about like no rim jobs, no rim jobs. Don't eat asshole during this time. <laughs> I'm like, this is serious, people. This is a serious time. <laughs> but yes, I mean, that's because they were talking about, I mean, they spoke pretty candidly for like a newspaper article. And clearly there's a long way to go in terms of like public health and, and sexual health in government. And I know maybe New York is different from North Carolina and California is different. Probably from won't be having a release on that <laughs> in our papers. <laughs> Attention all sex workers and sex worker appreciators. With everything being virtual right now, most folks are turning to creative alternatives online to get their needs met. This includes things like making money and emotionally or sexually connecting with others. Our sponsors, My Girl Fund, have some discounts and money help for you. To support people who are trying to make ends meet from home right now, My Girl Fund is giving a $50 bonus to all women who sign up during April and reach $500 in contributions. My Girl Fund allows its members to control their exposure. They connect with who they want to connect with, control how they want to interact, and decide what they charge for those interactions. And for those appreciators of camming and sex work and all that kinds of stuff, you can join MyGirlFund.com for free, and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than five bucks when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S and S. That's mygirlfund.com slash S A N D S. Now back to the episode. But in your in your opinion and in working in public health, like what work still needs to be done to maybe like expand yeah, expand that department. I just think people have to understand and grasp fully the concept of sexuality. And I know that seems like what they're doing prevention work, but they, it's so focused on the prevention or mechanics that they don't understand why people, there's a driving force as to why people do what they want to do. Um, and we have to tap into that part of it to help them do it. Like I said earlier, but in a safer way and to get over the fact that people are doing stuff that you don't do 
you don't like and you've never heard of. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing is like, well, why would we need to talk about that? Because people do it. So how do we get those fuck those fucks? <laughs> how do we get those folks to show up and like show out at things like the like NC Sex Conference? Because often I find that it's people who come to that stuff is maybe people like you're already preaching to the choir in some ways who are like showing up. How do we get people who do have that resistance to come and learn and see why this is important? Some of them, show, so some of them, honestly, I've asked in, in, in a sneaky way um, to get to the leadership. I mean, I value these people as um, leaders in our state, but I also uh, understand their worldview. I'll invite them to speak. I'll give them a half off registration. We have a group of um, sexuality professionals that I know, like, and that's the assumption, too, that I make. Because I'm like, well, if we're all doing this work. I know we're all kind of on the same page. And then after year one and I read the evaluations, I was like, oh, we're not definitely not on the same page. Some people came out of obligation for work. Um, and some people walked out of some sessions even that first year and were like, yeah, this is too much for me or whatever. And I'm like, so we still have work to do, even though we, you, you think the choir members, like when you say preaching to the choir, like you expect all the choir to know all the songs or be in line with whatever the songs are. Is that, is that what you mean when you say hallelujah sex professional? Yes. (laughs) Like people who are down for it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause those are the ones you're kind of like, no matter what workshop you put on, was it whether it's something that impacts them personally or professionally, they're gonna go. Um, this year we had Goody Howard from um, Dallas, Texas, and um, you know Toy Story Two came out this year, or well last year, and her workshop was called Toy Story, and we were like, oh, we've got to have it, and they're like, I wonder if anybody, like, how many people are gonna go? I was like, it doesn't matter, we're doing it. Jam packed room, and she was talking about the use of um, sex toys. And relation to different um, challenges, health challenges that people have, like that might help them or, you know, if they can't maintain their erection or libido or et cetera. Like it was so full. That's great. But yeah. Any ones that you remember in particular? Uh, The workshops? Um, I mean, anything from Toy Story specifically. The one that I remember, and I don't, I'm going to call it a sleeve, but I know that's not what it's called. I don't know I'm doing that. But it was about, it's a, it's a toy that is a silicone sleeve that allows um, the person to stick their penis in it, even if it's not erect. Yes. So they can have penetration and it like holds it in place. Yeah. Yes. And well, one that I really like is from one of our past guests, Joan Price, and she talks about um, having, she has a blog basically where it's like reviewing sex toys for people who have arthritis and, you know, back pain and are, are aging, aging persons and ageless sexuality. So like, check her out. <laughs> I will. Cause I think if we have ASEC, she's one of our speakers at ASEC this year. <laughs> so Tanya also works with ASEC. So tell me, tell us about ASEC. So I honestly going, I didn't learn about ASEC until I started going to Widener and going to some of the national conferences. And I I actually like and enjoy being around other sexual health professionals. It felt kind of elitist. I'm going to be honest. You know, it was just like, oh, my God, I'm a student from North Carolina. I'm a black woman. This is a lot. But I've learned so much. I've met so many great people. And I pushed myself to become ASIC certified because I started looking 
through the directory of who was certified in North Carolina, there weren't very many people and there were very few people of color in North Carolina. And so as I know for right now, I think there are only five people of color in North Carolina who are either ASEC certified educators, therapists, or both dual like certification. And so I also did it to inspire other people to work on their certification if that was something they wanted to do and not necessarily go back to get a doctorate degree or master's in sexuality education. Yeah, so for people who haven't heard of it, and hopefully the conference will still be going on in June, but who knows with these uncertain times, but it's the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Um, But there are still events and things that, you know, laypersons can go to that I think they can get a lot out of. But on on the topic of being maybe a minority person and feeling like one of the only people of color in an organization, something you talk a lot about in your work is sexual health equity. And I would love to know a little more about what what that means to you and and what your work looks like with that. So a lot of that stemmed from my work in teen pregnancy prevention. And as you know, and this is the science, I guess, all over. It's not North Carolina specific, but we get these evidence-based curricula, which I'm not knocking, right? Because the evidence is there, but the evidence is so specific, in my opinion, to wherever they research that when you bring it to a place like North Carolina, it's challenging. And then a lot of the content is very heteronormative. And so if you're doing teen pregnancy prevention, the assumption of many people is that if you have a pregnant woman, um, a girl or, you know, someone who's pregnant, period, you you assume that they identify as woman and uh, girl, right, or female. And you also make an assumption that they're heterosexual. There's rarely any talk about bisexuality or just curiosity or the fact that maybe that individual became pregnant, not at their own will, like maybe the sex wasn't consensual. And so the language in there, it almost speaks to fairy tales. Like um, there's one called Be Proud, Be Responsible. And it's kind of like making proud choices, but then they recreated it for a pregnant and parenting um, mom. And it's Be Proud, Be Responsible, Be Protective. And it taps into protective factors that uh, a person would have for their child. There's no uh, equivalent for a father. It's only specific to moms and it only speaks to male partners in the conversations. So I've really been trying to change the language and the lens of people understanding that everybody in here didn't, you know, one, everybody also didn't make a mistake around like, you know, it was unintended. We in our state, we have like a lot of army and military bases and there was one county, I guess I can say it because everybody's, you can look it up, doesn't matter, um, is um, Onslow County. And they used to have the highest teen rate pregnancies for years and years and years. And I started working in that county supporting pregnant and parenting teens and families. And I realized these folks were planning their pregnancies. They were teens because like, they, were, they got caught up in the statistical piece of it because they were eight, 17, 18, 19. But it was consensual. Some of them were married or going to be married. And the reason they started planning their families early is because they had to plan them based on when their spouses might get deployed. Mm, you know? So it wasn't it. like they were just teens or in Onslow County or having this wild and crazy unprotected sex. These were families who were really planning when to get pregnant or came to the the county already pregnant and just gave birth there 
because they came from somewhere else where they had done the same thing. Well, and like you said, it sounds like for the Times movie, it wasn't consensual that there's no component in there talking about like what that looks like and instead being like, be responsible. And there's no responsibility if you're a survivor of sexual abuse. Exactly. And these are these are curricula that have been um, out like in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s that need to be revisited. Is this just like pamphlets that are given out to people who come into a clinic or? No, it's full on six week. Well, depending on which program, it could be a six week serial group session of education. But like who has to take this or it's by choice? It's some most of the time it's by choice. Like you get to voluntarily enroll. Okay, good. I was imagining like getting a pamphlet like as soon as you come in and they notice you're a teen pregnant person and they're like, be responsible. And it's like, well, that totally like glazes over any like systemic racism and classism of like why they maybe ended up in this position if it's not consensual and all this stuff. Right. We have some programs. Most of the programs are voluntary, but we have some programs that are built into our schools. But again, it puts a lot of work on uh, uh, myself and our trainers to help people make the language inclusive. But then you're also like, you married the choir we were talking about. You got, these are the folks that are in the choir who don't understand or have that same worldview around sexual health equity and inclusivity. So now you're having them sit down and change names so that they don't hold, you know, hold gender or help them um, have conversations around same sex when they feel like the state laws don't support them or it doesn't um, resonate with them personally. Have folks been responsive when you give that feedback? I think they have been, but I think we still have a long way to go. I've worked in some school settings and it wasn't with the EBI, but it was another program where it was a school health counselor who was just like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to be working with gay students. And you're like, so you're a counselor. I'm confused like and what like it doesn't even make sense but that's their that was their personal like yeah. bias and lack of understanding and we expect more of this the people that are taking care of our kids and I don't know thinking of it in a bigger way I'm thinking of we're using the term like sexual health a lot and I would love to know like how you define sexual health because when I think of it it's so multifaceted yeah it is for me too. So in um, the health world, we always talk about the dimensions of health and wellness, and that includes your social, emotional, psychological, your physical. And I think the same way for sexual health, but I also think about financial, mm-hmm. cultural, and um, I say personal, meaning like who you are, your individual, I guess is what I should say. So like you come into the world and you're socialized by your family and whomever you're around, those are some things that impact how you feel about your sexual sexuality, your finances. Me and my mom, oh my God, my mom and I talk about sex so much now. I'm like, why can't you be like this back in the day? But we talk about- What do you think's opened her up to it now just because you're both adults and- I don't know when the shift happened, but it really took flight after my first conference. I think she got like in grad school, like she was like, oh, this is serious. Because my work had always been kind of more in the prevention level. And she could, I think, accept that more. And then we started talking about other stuff. And then, like, she's a totally, she's the best grandma now for my nieces. Because I'm like, you would have not had that conversation with me. There's no way. 
If somebody was questioning their sexuality, there was no question. <laughs> it was like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but we've talked about accessibility around sex toys, especially for older adults or people. Sex toys can be very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to get the safe ones, right? And the good ones too. And so we were talking about like, you know, finances can impact your sexuality and your pleasure. But we also have to be creative and think about other things we can use that are safe and pleasurable as well. Well, now that things are being challenged even more with like current, you know, quarantine things and coronavirus and public, you know, public health crises and emergencies, like what are some challenges that that you're seeing professionally and, you know, personally? So I think professionally and personally, the challenge is that uh, like a lot of my colleagues and friends are sexuality educators as well. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is that when you see that thing in the New York um, Times, it's kind of like that impacts us too. We might have more resources and thought about it, but uh, with talking with some of my colleagues who they're like, I just want to hug. Like, I just want to touch somebody. You know, everybody's kind of staying in place and it, you know, if you're a lot of my, some of my single friends. So I did the other day, um, somebody tagged me in a Instagram post about the condom quarantine challenge and like whatever condoms you had on hand, we would, you had to make a word or a phrase, whatever. <laughs> and one of my colleagues in public health who I adore admire, and she's an advocate for social justice and ra- and ending racism. She had like, a I think somebody counted I, her word was pray. And I think somebody counted that she had 36 condoms and they, they were like, why do you have so many condoms? And she was like, excuse me. And I remember one of the comments said, and I hope that person can listen. Cause I was like, really, what grade are we in? It's like, my mom told me, <laughs> this is an adult. My mom told me that you should never take condoms. Cause she, I think she said something like you should be all, if you don't, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I'm a woman who owns her sexuality, that, 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 that. And it was great. And I was like, yeah. And then that person came back and was like, my mom told me that you should never take a condom from a woman. And I was like, so what grade are we in? Okay. And it was just this whole, <laughs> I know your face is like, what? <laughs> well, it was just- no, but that's a cul- you know, a cultural or a generational or whatever it is, yeah. lack of education thing. And I feel like she did risk as she was some, she wants, she works in public health. But she does it. She does more around social justice, and um, she used to do a lot around physical fitness. So sexuality, sexual health, wasn't you know something that like if if any of the other people who did the challenge, we all kind of do the same work. Mm-hmm. And so she took a risk, and it was like an unintended risk to do this and expose you know who she. I don't say expose who she was, but she was she made herself vulnerable for these conversations, and people were just going crazy about it but also it just showed that people are lonely and she was talking about you know you know she's you know check on your single friends yeah so people are lonely people who are in the space more with their partners are being challenged around like figuring out ways to communicate and get time for yourselves Mm -hmm. but then I think some people are experiencing the joy of being able to be with their partners more so I think it you may come out of this, like I said, differently in that you might be closer or you might realize like you don't really like the person that you're partnered with oh, as much as you used to. <laughs> true, true. You might need some therapy. Hit us up. Yeah, if you can, it will definitely make some work for us. And people jokingly talk about Corona babies 
But that's a possibility too. I read, and I don't know if this was true because I didn't, I read the title and not the actual article, which sometimes I'm guilty of, but it says something about, and actually this, the person that I was just talking about is the one who posted it, but said something like a condom shortage. And I was like, ah, I guess all these people are judging us for doing this challenge. They're going to be hitting us up for condoms soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, toilet paper and condoms. <laughs> it's gold. <laughs> But yeah, I do think that we're all being challenged in even our intimacy with ourselves. Like if you're someone who is home alone, you're kind of having to get in tune with yourself. And sometimes that is really scary as well. But that's still part of our sexuality. Do you have any tips for people who are maybe trying to get into it with themselves for the first time? I would just say be open. Like, Something might not work, but don't just keep trying, you know? Yeah, I would add don't be goal oriented. Um, focus on like body sensations. And chances are, if you've never like looked at yourself or touched yourself, you're going to think that like something's wrong down there because it like you think it looks weird. <laughs> but chances are, like, I'm not your doctor, but chances are you're probably fine. It just is like a foreign thing to you. <laughs> Right. And that's the other thing. Like when I teach at NTC, I tell people in my class, my students, I'm like, have you ever looked at yourself? I mean, like really looked at yourself. And they're like, what? I was like, You're that's like, a whole Peel back the folds, the yeah. flaps. The- like, check <laughs> yourself out. Like we inspect other people sometimes. We need to inspect ourselves. Yeah. Well, this is totally a segue, but I'm realizing that we're running out of time. But as I was as I was like reading up on what you're doing now, I saw that you are maybe hosting trainings um, or talking about something called pornea, <laughs> which you labeled as eye health and sexuality. And I don't think I have ever talked about the intersection of the two other than maybe talking about like sex and ability and seeing. But like what? What is that? Like, tell me all the things. This is super new territory. I'm still to get collecting my research. But if you know, well, you know me and you know, I love eyeglasses. So I get an eye exam every year, probably two pair of glasses every year. And I was talking with my doctor. So I myself um, have been having symptoms of dry eye. Um, So I've had like tingling and I don't know if you know what it feels like to have a sty. If you've ever had like a sty on your eye or a pain. Yep. And I didn't have a side, but it, it felt like it. And so I was telling him about it. And so my eye doctor actually loves gadgets. So he had this new equipment where he can actually look at the glands in the bottom of your lens uh, or your lid to see where they're like shrinking down. So we're in no age now where we're always on our phone or like a tablet or a, a, some type of device, even if it's a book we're reading, but it's primarily devices and it strains our eyes. Mm-hmm. And we often don't blink to keep the eyes moisturized because we're kind of... Now I'm like really aware of if I'm blinking. <laughs> you should be. No, you really should be. He, and I, I took him very seriously and I haven't had... I've been trying to blink more often and I haven't had any of the sensations in a very long time. But when we were talking about it. He was saying, I have a whole new room now where I'm seeing patients and young patients um, who are suffering from dry eye. And so he knows what I do. And I was like, do you think they're watching porn? And he was like, I don't know. I was like, well, let's find out. Like, you know, like let's find the research about like what's going on and use of devices for porn and then um, research on dry eye. 
and let's make some connection. And I said, you know what? We should first start with a workshop. And I was like, oh, I don't know what we're going to call it. And he was like, cornea. And then that's, that's literally where we landed. And so we're hoping, um, <laughs> I'm hoping to present it at um, the Healthy Teen Network, which is scheduled in November because it's about technology. So I'm pulling together some research about dry eye, porn usage, and hoping to find some on eye problems and use of porn, which we've been coming up with zero, but we're also, I'm hoping to serve. <laughs> but it's worth looking into. <laughs> I'm ready to survey some folks who are experiencing dry eye and asking them what are they using their devices for? Because I think there's something there. Well, I don't want to deter people from like looking at porn and especially now, like the only way, the only way to stay connected is virtually. And so there are a lot of screens, but I know you're not, you know, the eye doctor, but like, what are some things that have been helpful to like still do that stuff, but also maintain your eye health? Right. Cause that was the point is to keep people from getting dry eye too, and still do what they need to do. So it was hydrating. So drinking more water, like lube, lube, your lube, your genitals, lube, your eyes. Right. Keep your eyes lubricated too. <laughs> um, and also if you wear corrective lenses, keep them on. So I am at an age where I might need additional lenses <laughs> for multiple views. Just more, that's just more glasses for you, more glasses style. And they tend to be more expensive, to be honest. And mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, I'm going to only get one pair. I'll just, so I noticed I would take my glasses off. So the thing that helps with your vision and helps it not get worse and impact the dry eye is if you wear corrective lenses and you're looking at these screens, keep your corrective lenses on. Like, don't keep, like, you know, some people look down or take them off. Keep the lenses on. You can adjust the um, text fonts and size of your screens. Like, so bigger is always better. <laughs> Not all time better. <laughs> but in terms of your text on your phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to do that. And then literally the blinking. And when you're in the shower or times when you can to moisturize your eyes, like kind of like rubbing your eyes is really bad. And I, I'm bad for that as well. Um, you need to like wipe them down, like wipe them and do it in the shower. And that helps with moisturizing them too. So some good tips, right? Well, I'm really excited to hear about your pornea findings. And I'm so grateful that you came to talk to me on the podcast. How can people, not that you need extra work, but how can people find you, hire you? Um, by the way, Tanya is holding her really cute dog. And you might have heard my dog squealing in the background too. So this is social distancing podcasting with animals. How can people find you, hire you, consult with you? Yeah, my website is www.tanyambass.com. I'm on Instagram. I changed my Instagram to the Tanya Ambass. I don't know why. I just saw people doing the. I put that. Or the. Because you're, you're a celebrity. <laughs> and my hashtag, if you ever just want to find some of my posts from like teachings and workshops, is um, Southern Sexologist. And so that's how they can find me. Well, thank you so much for joining. Again, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and you can always email with your questions, rants, or if you need some resources at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Yay!